It is a glorious day, no matter how much the clouds and the rain might want to be here. It is a glorious day because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And certainly here at Crossway and millions and millions of other churches around the globe, we celebrate today the fact that Christ is risen from the grave. But as Pastor Doug already said, we do not just do this today. This is our everyday experience. Every Sunday when we gather at Crossway, it is a day in which we celebrate the fact that the Lord has risen from the grave. It is the centerpiece of everything that we hope and believe. But it is today, of all those days, that we are especially grateful and we specifically recognize the fact that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the grave. And we remember today, of all days, the centerpiece of God's work in Christ by vindicating him and his life, and his work by raising him from the dead. So today, more than any other day, is a day of celebration for us. Every year, we are reminded of the difficulty that people have in agreeing with us on those issues, though. Every year, we are reminded that the resurrection is doubted by some. This week, the BBC um, ran a poll. Polls are always really good um, fodder for knowledgeable information, uh, and they ran a poll, and the, the headline on top of their, their page that gave the results for this poll was, the resurrection did not happen, say a quarter of Christians, uh, which is just absolutely ridiculous. It's sort of like writing a headline stating, a quarter of bachelors are married. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So if you are a Christian, you believe that Christ has risen from the grave. There is no sort of shortcut. There's no secondary way to become a Christian. You can't nod in acceptance and say Jesus was a good man and think that you are a Christian. It takes more than just the belief that Jesus rose out of the grave, as we will talk about soon. But that is the foundation. If Jesus did not get up out of the grave, Paul says, listen, go on your way. Eat, drink, and be merry. And you are to be pitied if you continue to not do that because you are still in your sin and God is still angry against you and there is no hope for you. So you might as well go out and live it up now, he says. But we don't. We have life and we have it abundantly, but we don't have it just here on this earth because we know that Christ has been risen from the grave. When thinking about that this week, I was reminded of a class in seminary I had where Uh, For the first time, the thought really hit me as we were talking about world religions and my professor uh, noted to the class that simply believing in the resurrection is not quite enough. There are a lot of people who believe in, in weird things. We believe in weird things. Let's be honest, Christians. You believe in very odd things. You think that a man who was God fully God, fully man, rose from the grave on the third day. He floated up to heaven on the clouds and he reigns over all the earth now. And he will one day come back as he went to announce more fully and finally his reign over all of the earth. You believe in weird things, but he noted lots of people believe in lots of weird things. And there are people out there who will hear of a man being raised from the grave and they'll say, yeah, wow, radical. So what? It is not just that we have to stand up and pronounce that the resurrection happened, but we have to give a meaning as to why. And that's why we're not going to talk about the five reasons the resurrection happened or ten reasons why you can believe the resurrection. I'm perfectly happy doing that stuff. And I will tell you that the resurrection for me in my life has been incredibly important because it's the one thing that I think I couldn't shake. 
It was the one thing that always kind of kept me. I couldn't doubt the fact that the resurrection happened. And so I'm perfectly happy. If you need reasons to believe in the resurrection, you can catch me afterward. But that's not enough always. And it's not what we're going to be doing today. Today, we're going to be looking at why the resurrection is important. What is the meaning of the resurrection? and What does it do for us? And to keep this sermon from being about two weeks long, I'm only going to give you a portion of that answer and a portion of that answer that we can find in Luke chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke 23. Again, Luke 23. We'll begin reading in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They then returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, And bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes, cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. May God be pleased to bless this reading of his word. What can we take away from this particular portion of Scripture? What can we apply and say, this is the meaning of the resurrection for us today? Just three things for us to kind of hold on to as we think about the resurrection today. First, the resurrection creates the new. It creates the new. Now, I I feel like every time I stand in front of you, I'm talking about the fact that there is new creation I talked about it almost all the way through Colossians. I've talked about it several times in Deuteronomy already. I talk about it every time I stand in front of you. And I do this not simply because I like talking about it, although I think that it is immensely important. I do that because it is found writ large throughout the whole of the Bible. It is found especially writ large throughout Paul's writings and in John's writings. But we get a different sense of it here. We get a different picture of it here. And perhaps this picture will be illuminating for you. Luke signals that this is important for us and how the new creation comes about through Jesus. When Luke begins his gospel, he notes a certain man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest and he serves before the Lord. He is righteous, 
He notes, Luke goes out of his way to note both he and his wife Elizabeth are righteous people. Angels then make an appearance to him and to Mary and to shepherds. Mary, of course, being Mary the virgin who has not known a man. The angels make a very sudden appearance to shepherds, people who were very, very low on social standing. So you remember the angels did not go to Herod. The angels didn't go to the wise men. The angels didn't go to the prophets. They didn't go to the Pharisees. They didn't go to the Sadducees. The angels went not to those who were high and mighty and powerful, who could have done something, let's think, but he went, they went, to shepherds, lowly people. And in going to these lowly people, they announced to those shepherds that there was a life, that there was life that would change everything in the world. And those shepherds then went away and they told the report of the angels to others. When we come here to the account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we find a similar, although clearly not exact, pattern. Joseph of Arimathea, who was an important man like Zechariah, is called righteous and he serves the Lord. That service for him was to give the body of Jesus a fine burial. Specifically, Luke calls out a burial in a tomb that had never had a body laid in it before. Angels then make a sudden appearance. And they make a sudden appearance not to those whom we would expect. They don't appear to, again, the leaders. They don't appear to the Sadducees. They don't appear to the Pharisees. And most importantly here, they don't appear to the apostles, but the angels appear to women. Now, it might not be fair, and you might not like it, but women in those days did not have great social standing. They were not counted as witnesses to anything. So if you had a courtroom setting, you could not call women as witnesses to what was going on. But the angels did not announce the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to people who could count as witnesses. The angels didn't go to the apostles. The angels appeared to the women who came to the tomb. And the women themselves went and told the apostles. They reported what the angels had said in each case, both in the birth of Jesus and in his resurrection. We have a righteous man of some importance who serves the Lord, a sudden appearance of angels to a group of people who are low on the social standing front, an announcement of life and a repeating of this announcement after a journey back to others. In other words, the resurrection, Luke is saying, is a repetition of the birth of Jesus Christ. And exceptionally important here is the fact that Jesus was born to a woman who had not known a man. Likewise, here, he is born out of a tomb that has not known a man. He was born once of the flesh, but now he is born literally of the earth. He comes up out of a rock. Now, that might not mean a whole bunch to you, but it does in scripture because there's only one man who has ever been born of the earth. In Genesis 2-7, God forms out of the dust of the earth Adam and he breathes life into Adam. And Adam is in charge of all of creation. Adam signals the final front of all of creation. He is the crowning signature on everything that God has done. And out of Adam, not out of the dust, but out of Adam, he brings forward Eve. And then from Adam and Eve come all people. There is one man who is born out of the dust. But now there is a new man who is born out of the dust. 
Jesus Christ is raised from the grave and he signals not just resurrection, but he signals a whole new creation. As Adam was the crowning signature at the end of creation, so like a mirror, Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. Everything is new. The cosmos will be redone. Life will be redone. Our lives will be redone because Christ is risen from the grave. Secondly, the resurrection clarifies the old. It creates the new, but it clarifies the old. It is, it is easy, I think, and right for, when, for us to read through Scripture and, and to absolutely be befuddled by the women here and by the apostles as to why this event has come as a huge surprise. Right? The women show up, they look in, and they say, Huh, there's nobody there. I wonder what happened. Right? And the angels say with everybody else in chorus and union, don't you remember that he told you this? And they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There was something about that. And it's really strange. It's hard to fathom how a man can get up three separate times and say things like, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to take me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to get up from the grave after three days. And then all of that happens exactly how he says. And they say, huh, I wasn't expecting that. So it's strange. And, and we stand reading it, and we're like, I don't understand why they don't get it. Now, when we were going through Mark recently in our community groups, something struck me, and I think, I think I might know why they didn't understand it. Jesus has this way of speaking. If you go through Luke, if you go through Mark, if you go through Matthew, Jesus has a way of talking to people that is very particular, a way of teaching them about what's going to happen that is very particular. That way is speaking in parables. Very early on, before we get to any sort of announcement of who Jesus really is in the Gospel of Luke, we have got Jesus giving a parable. It is the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, however you want to say it. And he stands up before people and he says, this guy, crazy guy goes around and he's throwing seeds everywhere. Eventually, the disciples take him aside and say, listen, that's all good, but we don't understand a lick of what you're saying. Could you explain that to us? And Jesus not only gives him the explanation, but before that, he talks to him very specifically about why. And in Luke 8, 9 and 10, Jesus says this. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. In other words, Jesus talks in parables purposely so that people won't know what he's talking about. Now, there's more to unpack than that. But Jesus continually, for the rest of his time, almost all of his teaching to people comes in terms of parables. Now, when we turn to him talking about his death and his resurrection, he speaks very plainly and openly. Mark says specifically that he says this plainly. But in Luke... You can forgive them for thinking that this isn't very plain because after he says, I will go to Jerusalem, die and be raised from the grave, immediately after that, he says to all of them in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Even if what Jesus said about himself before that was very literal, there's no way anyone would have ever understood what he says after it to be literal. You can't take up your cross daily. You don't do that. You are crucified 
and you die. And you can't die daily. Now, you can metaphorically, which is what Jesus was getting at, figuratively. So you can understand why his application of his own happenings, of the death and resurrection that he was going to suffer, was to be applied to them. But it's applied metaphorically, so they probably thought it was metaphorical as well. More than that. More than that. The many parables that follow would lead people to think that this was just figurative language. The good Samaritan, the rich fool, the master who returns after a wedding feast, the barren fig tree, the mustard seed, and the leaven. The wedding feast, the great banquet, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Dishonest manager, the rich man in Lazarus, the persistent widow, ten minas, the wicked tenants, on and on, the parables roll out of him. And more than that, because these parables were not always brought up because of an occasion. It wasn't just something that happened that made Jesus think of the parable. It seemed to be part and parcel of his teaching of the kingdom of God. It is likely, it's more than likely, that Jesus said these parables over and over again to the new crowds who came. So they thought that when he spoke of the resurrection, he was not speaking literally. When they show up, the women say, oh, I get it now. He meant that. He actually meant that. Now, what, we're, what we can do then is to see that the, the resurrection brought clarity to them. They understood what Jesus had said before, although he said it clearly. It was foggy for them. It was clouded in mystery, and, and it wasn't something that they readily understood. But now, after the resurrection, it's clear. It, it's obvious to them. The resurrection does this for us. It provides clarity, not just for Jesus' words to the women in Galilee, but for Jesus' words to us for all time. Jesus has spoken to us, not just in the Gospels and in the New Testament, but he is the word of God. He has always been the revelation of God. He is the revelation given to Moses, given to Aaron, given to Abraham, given to David, given to the sons of Korah, all the way through the Old Testament. This is his declaration of who God is. And the resurrection clarifies all of that for us. Jesus himself says this later on in chapter 24, verses 25 and 26 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You go back and you read in the Old Testament, there are various streams that flow in various directions and they don't all seem to be coalescing into one thing. They, they seem to be sort of taken off in their own direction on their own. But as we rightfully say that all streams eventually lead to the ocean, the Saginaw River leads to the Saginaw Bay, leads to Lake Huron, leads to the St. Lawrence Seaway, leads to the Atlantic, all of these Old Testament streams lead to Christ. Do you want to know what the law means? Do you want to know what the promise really is? The blessings, the curses, the sacrifices, the kings, the destruction of enemies, the taking down of Goliath, the taking down of giants, what it means to be married, what it means to have rest, what it means to have creation, justice, compassion. All of these streams find their final point in Jesus Christ. He doesn't for us just clarify the old words that he has spoken, but he clarifies the ancient words that he has spoken from the beginning of time. He clarifies to us the meaning of all things. He creates the new, he clarifies the old, and his resurrection confounds 
the world. We certainly should not leave with the impression that when we say it clarifies, it means that it makes it perfectly clear in all ways. The resurrection does not take what is muddy and make it perfectly clear so that somehow if you understood the work of God the Father, the Spirit, God the Father and the Spirit, and raising Jesus from the dead, you would understand the mysteries of all things. This is certainly not the case. Because while the resurrection clarifies certain mysteries, it also brings to light even more. I was reminded this week when thinking through this of uh, my daughter's first day of school. And like many kids on her first day of school, she was going to be introduced to new topics. But these were topics that we had sort of introduced to her before. You know, when, when you're a parent and you're sitting around, there are things that are mentioned and you talk about history. You talk about reading and, and certain stories from books. You talk about math and things like that. And so she had a, a rudimentary knowledge of these things and she had done some adding and subtracting before and she knew how to do it. And so when her mother sat her down and said, okay, okay, so today we're going to start a, a pattern of learning that's going to go on for 12 years, and one of the things we're going to learn is math. She, with the greatest and most sincerity uh, and just pure honesty, looked up at her mother and said, I don't know why I have to do that, Mama. I already know math. Right? If only it were that easy. You see, the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Most people don't know how much they don't know. Most people think that maybe Algebra 2, maybe Trig, Calculus might be the end of it. But the people who know most how much they don't know are the people who know most about subjects. Like that, we can think that we know something about the resurrection. We can think that we have a clarity in our thoughts and our thinking about what the resurrection means. But the more we learn about it, the more we realize that we are confounded from a God in the face of the resurrection. The resurrection doesn't clarify everything for Peter. Sure, I mean, it helps him clarify some things. I have no doubt that the run to the tomb was filled with a mixture of answered questions and great epiphanies in such a way that, however, I think it only sparked more questions. Staring at the empty tomb, his mind no doubt transfixed on the fact that there was absolutely no body no decay, no death. Perhaps Jesus' warnings of his death and resurrection were likewise ringing through his ears. Luke doesn't tell us, and it's probably for the best. Now listen, if Peter had reason to marvel at the events of that day, we have more. Peter didn't understand half that day of what we understand now. And it ought to lead to more wonder, to more marveling of our eyes. We have more reasons, more questions that the resurrection hardly answers, but to the contrary, brings with it a mystery that leaves us in awe. The resurrection means that many of our ideas about God are confounded and demonstrates that God is more awesome than man could have ever anticipated or expected. How great a love does God have for us? How great a love that a king would come to serve his people rather than to be served by them. How great a love that the offended would gladly pay for the crimes of the offenders. Not, not in a separate situation as though he's just a random man walking along the street, but he would pay for their offenses when he himself, as very God of very God, was the one who was offended by them. How great a love is God 
the one and only whom there is life, would take on mortal flesh to somehow, in the mystery of mysteries, suffer and die. How does a man stay silent before his captors, knowing that he is innocent, knowing all the more that he could call down legions of angels, that by a word he could snuff out their life, by a word he could dematerialize them, by a thought he could cut short their breath, life, and everything that is in them. How can that man stand silent and take all of their wrath and their anger when he is the one who ought to rightfully be wrathful and angry? How does a man entrust himself so fully to the will of God? How does a man stand crucified while his father, powerful enough to save him, looks on and does nothing? How does that man entrust himself to God so fully, knowing that even if he dies, he will raise again? How can a man allow himself to die so that God can show his great power again by raising him from the dead? How can a death and resurrection be the answer to all of the problems of the world? How can this simple act lived out some 2,000 years ago be everything that you need to face the dangers and the temptations of this world? How can this be our comfort? How does this provide the needed solution for all of man's evil, nature's fury, the overriding power of sickness and disease? How does this help you in the face of mounting debt, physical toil and pain, wrecked marriages, wild children, demanding bosses, bad luck and disappointment? What kind of God in his infinite wisdom plans the entirety of the world around this event where frankly a no-name man is put on a cross in the middle of nowhere in order to save the entirety of a world? What kind of God makes a world in which known to him long before he ever created it would be marked by such destruction, evil, disaster, unmitigated pain and anguish? oppression, confusion, and sin against him? What kind of God does this all while knowing with a certainty that is far beyond anything that you could ever be certain of? He knows with a certainty that by taking on mortal flesh, suffering, dying, and being raised from the dead were the only cures for all those ills. What kind of God weaves the tapestry of the Old Testament so full of vengeance, wrath, anger, and brutality, laced with streams of grace and mercy and love and promise. Bravery, submission, sin, only to tie all of these together through a death carried out on what the world would have considered simply a common criminal. What kind of God leaves such mystery and such wonder such immensely important truth in the hands of the very men and women who so strongly warred against him. He uses men, not angels, not voices from heaven, not displays of power in the sky, not fire falling upon mountains to announce his good news. He uses simple words proclaimed by the lowest 
frankly, least noble among us to announce the victory of a crucified and denied king over the very power of death. What kind of God gives that sort of message to people like me and to people like you? What kind of God then calls those men and women, gifting them with what he calls eternal life, to go to foreign nations and die for him? The answer to all of these questions is both simple and profound. It's like looking at the surface of the ocean, which is beautiful in its simplicity, yet holds depths and wonders that we cannot fathom. It is easy enough for a child to understand rightly, and yet it is rich enough to satisfy the curiosity of thoughtful adults for the rest of their lives and indeed for all of eternity. It is simply this. That God loved the world by giving his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This verse is so small, and I have no doubt that every single person who sits in here has heard it before and knows it likely by heart. And yet in this small verse, there is an entire universe of meaning and power. It is the answer to all your questions, but not easily and not simply. It is the answer to all of your pain, to all of your sin, and most importantly, to all of your desires. It is the answer to your purpose. It is the answer to your life. Why has God put you here? Why has he put you here at all? Why has he taken the time to form you in your mother's womb? to place breath and life in your lungs, to lead you to have life and blood beating through your heart, and even more than that, to bring you here today. It is not always an answer that presents itself through logic and reason, though it clearly is not antithetical to those, but it is an answer that comes through wonder, amazement, and faith. Let us marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ the eternally begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, who was of one substance with the Father for us and our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the Scriptures. And he has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Let us marvel, let us marvel, that this Jesus was raised today. And let us marvel always that that is true And it is true forever. And even more, it is true for you. One day, although you will die, lest the Lord tarry and come back, you will die. Of old age, of young age, of a car accident, of cancer, you will die. But for those who know Jesus Christ, you will never die. You will be raised again. Let us pray. Holy God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We ask you through the Spirit that today we might leave 
the resurrection account, as Peter did, full of wonder at such a powerful, mighty, beautiful, and just God. May we leave with certainty in the power of your promises made true through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord to be made sure for your people. May we leave with good news written on our hearts, believed in our souls, and ready on our lips. May you be praised for your plan and work made known to us through your holy apostles. And may you seal us for your kingdom as we forsake this world by faith. We ask that you do these things, not because we are worthy, not because we are powerful, but because Jesus Christ has been risen from the grave. We ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.